joining King's Table Church. I've been excited to say that. Actually, uh, uh, I've heard a lot of different versions of your church name. I've heard King's Table, I've heard Knight's Table, Queen's Gambit, like you name it, I've probably heard it. And so I was really hoping that I wasn't going to mess that up. King's Table Church, I'm pumped to be here. Can I start by just waxing poetically about your pastor? Would that be okay? Can I do that? If you want to see uh, a human squirm, just look back in his direction as I say these things. Uh, we are sarcastic and we are a jokey friendship, uh, but I love your pastor dearly. And I believe in this church and what he's doing uh, a ton, a ton. Um, Charles Spurgeon was this famous pastor in this great uh, preparer of preachers. And he says this about a really good pastor. He says, I love a minister whose face invites me to make him my friend on whose doorstep you read, welcome, not beware of the dog. Give me the man around whom the children come. An individual who doesn't have a friendly, cheerful manner about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed at influencing the living. A man must have a great heart if he is going to have a great congregation. And when a man has a large and loving heart, men go to him as ships to a haven. Such a man is hearty in private as well as in public. King Stable Church, that is your pastor. Is it not? Amen. I'm just really grateful for him. I'm super grateful for y'all. I'm super grateful for the opportunity to be here. And so I'd love if we could begin by just praying that the Lord would kind of bless us during this time as we get into our Advent message. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father, the grass withers, the flower fades. Your word does not. It does not. It is a perfect and withstanding word. It's a correct word. Oh, we need your word. And we're just so thankful that it is perfect and without error. And we stand before you today, God, and we announce that we need help. Your word needs no help. We are the ones that need the help. And so we're just begging, begging right now by your spirit that you would help us make much of your son by your word. And we ask all of this in his precious name. And all God's people in one accord said, amen and amen. In the timeless theological work, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, there's this moment at the beginning of the movie. I just showed my cards. I'm the movie guy, not the book guy. There's this uh, moment at the beginning of that first movie where Hagrid, this like burly wizard kind of thing, barges into Harry's non-wizardy kind of life to make sure that Harry makes it on, uh, to school on time, to Hogwarts. And then this weird like moment of clarity at the beginning of the movie, Hagrid looks upon Harry and he says, you're a wizard, Harry. I've been practicing that all week. Come on. It's pretty good, right? He, he says, you're a wizard, Harry. And in that moment, you know when watching the movies that that is a monstrous moment. Because in the background, that Harry Potter theme song starts to play in the background. And then it starts to pick up cadence and tempo and, and noise. And you start to realize that this is actually a momentous part of the movie. You see, Hagrid didn't make Harry a wizard. He just certified that he was one, right? He, he didn't make Harry a wizard. He is just the first one to kind of call it out and say, that is who you are, Harry Potter. Now, I start this way uh, today because I want to do the same thing with you, except you're not a wizard. You're something way better. You are a worshiper, a worshiper. You're a worshiper. And I know you could have read that Psalm 95 text and been like, man, I thought we're in Christmas. Like, this isn't a very, there's no shepherds, there's no angels, there's no wise men, there's no animals, baby in a manger, all the things. This has everything to do with Christmas. If you look at the Christmas story, what you're going to find, no matter which character you are looking at, is that this baby is no ordinary baby because he is worshipped. From the first days of him taking his breaths in his little baby form, he is absolutely worshipped. And the psalmist today in Psalm 95 is going to show you, hey, you want to know what it looks like to worship that baby? I'm going to show you what it looks like to worship that baby. 
And Psalmist is going to do that in a few ways. He's going to acknowledge that you are a worshiper, just like Harry Potter is a wizard. And that, that worship has three things about it. It has this, if you're taking notes, a public praising of God, that that is a part of you being a worshiper. But it's not just a public praising, that you also have a shared surrender to God. So not just public praising, but shared surrender. And then not only that, he'll also show that you have a familial following of God. You praise God, you surrender to God, you follow this God. That is what a correct worship of this baby in the manger is like. That is what we're going to see today. However, before we see it, I want to prove a point, if you'll allow me to, really quickly. I just said a pretty large statement, and so you have to work backwards and prove that. I just said you are a worshiper. Like, I just said it matter-of-factly. I didn't even allow you to have an opinion, right? You are a worshiper. That is what you are as a creature. And so I just want to take just two moments really quickly to prove that to you. I'm going to prove it to you in two ways, okay? The first is scripturally, that the scriptures say this through and through. They drip with this kind of language, that you and I are dust, you and I are creatures, and part of our dusty and creaturely uh, makeup is that we are worshipers, the same way we are breathers and eaters and sleepers. I have a million opportunities uh, in the scriptures to tell you this. I'm going to choose one that fits really well with our passage today. In the book of Exodus, God frees his people miraculously from slavery, parts an ocean, Red Sea, that whole thing, right? And he frees them from that. And then on the other side of that, he not just frees them from slavery, he frees them from slavery to a promised land. And on the way to the promised land, he gives them these things called the Ten Commandments, which many of us have seen. They've been hung in classrooms and you hear him talked about every once in a while. They're pretty famous in a way. And the second of those Ten Commandments is a really interesting one. It says this in the book of Exodus. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. It's really interesting, right? That is God telling them not that he is interested in them worshiping or not worshiping. Notice how he didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, now that you're on the other side of this slavery, I'm going to need you to worship, right? He assumes they will be worshiping. He assumes that they're going to worship. What he's interested in is what they are worshiping in. Do you see how that works? He knows they're going to worship. He's interested in them worshiping the correct thing because he knows as the one who made them that they are worshipers. But that's not the only example. I think an honest assessment of our heart will prove this as well. This is the best way I could think to illustrate this. Uh, David Foster Wallace, famous postmodern novelist, passed away just a little while ago, self-proclaimed atheist, very educated, very smart man, very educated and very smart, had a very thoughtful comment at his commitment address at Kenyon University. This is what I, I think I have it on the screen for you. This is what he said. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. That's really interesting, isn't it? Isn't that incredibly thoughtful? That is a self-proclaimed atheist saying, yeah, if you really think about it, if you really look inside this thing, if you really kind of turn inward and think about it, we're really just worshiping a bunch of the things around us. And I think he's spot on. He's aligning with the scriptures perfectly. And this makes perfect sense when you and I understand what worship is, how we define it. And that's what the psalmist wants us to see today. You see, when many of us hear that word worship, we naturally think one thing, singing. Like what we just did, that was worship. And it was. But that doesn't constitute all that worship is. Actually, the phrase worship comes from an old English word that, that deals with the idea of worth. That's where it comes from. Worth-ship is where it comes from. In other words, worship is anything that you are ascribing ultimate value to. Anything that you are looking towards uh, for happiness 
And that thing will elicit a full-bodied emotional response from you, no matter what it is. It's the thing that brings you your value, the thing that brings you your comfort, your security, your happiness, your sense of fulfillment. Those are things that you and I worship. It is natural for us. You see, we all worship something. It's what captures our heart and our attention. It's whatever that thing is that you feel you must ultimately have or else life is meaningless, whatever that is, or that thing you feel that you must ultimately hang on to because if you were to lose it, life would be meaningless. Those are the things that you and I worship. They're the things that you give immense worth to and value to. And you will bow to them like a God, won't you? You'll surrender to them like a God. You'll give them a whole lot of money and energy and attention, and you'll try to convince other people to bow to it as well. See, David Kenyon wasn't that far off. We all worship. And entering this psalm, the psalmist is saying, hey, let me show you. Let me show you what true worship is and how there is only one place for it. There's only one place for it. Anything else is going to leave you, lead you astray. He starts by agreeing, though, that worship does have something to do with singing. We see this in verses 1 through 5. He says this, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And in his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. See, the psalmist is entreating you and I, but not individually. He's talking to a collective people. That's very important. He's talking to a collective people, a church, a king's table to say, to come and publicly praise their God. That part of the correct worship of that baby in a manger is the gathering, the communal, the proclaiming, the singing for and about our God. But he's also clear it's not just a singing to. Look at what he said in the verses. It's not just a singing to. It is also a coming into the presence of. A coming into the presence of. You need to hear this. We need to hear this every week. Every week you must hear this. Uh, it is not just singing to or for or about King Jesus is what you're doing when you get in here. You are actually meeting with a real person, with a real living presence. It's not just a singing to. It is a deeply affected public praise of him. And that should make you forever hopeful to walk in this middle school on Sunday mornings, right? That should make you forever. You're not coming to sing. You're not coming to sing like songs that you like or to listen to some guy jabber on for 30 minutes. You are coming to meet with a presence. You are coming to meet with your king. It should make you expectant. It should make you hope-filled. You should skip out of bed into this place. And if you're one of the, the saints in this room that was here really early setting up to make sure that, you know, baby places would be ready and coffee would be brewed, you should wake up with that same expectancy as well. What are you doing? You are creating you're creating a space where God can meet with his people. It's miraculous. You're transforming a school into a, an outpost of God's glory and fullness for all people in this community to experience. It's a beautiful thing. It is not brewing coffee. It is not brewing coffee. And it is not loading or unloading a truck. It is the very work of God. And if you're not engaged in any of that stuff, then you need today to be like, hey, can I join that setup team? I need some of that in my life. You see, this is what he's showing. You and I are meeting with a real presence when we're here. And why is this God who we are meeting with worthy of worship? He tells you all throughout the psalm with a three-letter word, for, F-O-R. He says he's worthy of worship because he's great. 
He's great. He's unbeatable, friends. He's true. He's magnificent. He's holy. He's not powerless, and he's not puny. He's over all gods. That's how the psalmist said it. He said he is the king over all gods is how he described it. Now, don't let that confuse you. We see that language all throughout the Psalms. Lower G gods, that's a common thing you see in the scriptures. Don't let that scare you. I thought we only had one God, I don't know. Um, It's a normal thing. Notice how he capitalized king in the passage. He's the king over all other gods, and then gods is plural and lowercase. In other words, the psalmist is just agreeing with the rest of the scriptures and saying there are mid-level controllers, lesser managers. There are, but they're all under the true king, whether they're spiritual entities people leading whole nations and governments, political systems right now, it doesn't matter. They're all under the reign of King Jesus. But he's not just the king overall. The psalmist said, for he is the creator of all. But that is why he should be endowed with worship. He's the creator over everything. I think this is the doctrine that the church in our current moment needs to hold on to the most right now, is the doctrine of creation that you have a God that created you. It is so easy in your life to forget that because you are so powerful, aren't you? Can you think of how advanced your life is? You can pull out a phone and contact people across the world instantaneously, right? That's a power too advanced for a human, really. You could pull out your phone and you can order something and have it delivered on your doorstep the very next day. Like This technology, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it is teaching us a narrative that you and I are way more powerful, we're way more godly than we could ever imagine. So the doctrine of creation is really important. Our God is worthy of worship and he is worthy of praise and he is worthy of honor because he is the one who created us and everything because he's the creator of all. The best way I could think to... uh, to think about this was the Mona Lisa. Y'all know the Mona Lisa? I'm not an art person. I would argue it's like the most famous art in history, right, is the Mona Lisa. Um, I think I have a picture of it. Yeah, there she is, looking great. Um, What is the meaning? What is the meaning behind the Mona Lisa? Let me ask you that. I'm sure you've seen this before. What's the meaning behind it? What does it mean? You have no idea, do you? I Wikipedia'd it. So I'll tell you, here's some potentials, right? Here's some things that I saw. You could say, I think she has no eyebrows or eyelashes because he's making a perceived statement on beauty and youth. Some of you just noticed for the first time that she has no eyebrows or eyelashes. Praise God for you. Yeah. Or you could say this. You could say, uh, you know, I think her hand placement and her posture, they're making a unique statement about men and women and gender differences during this time period. You could say something like that. Or you could get all Da Vinci Code with it. Anyone seen that movie? You get all Da Vinci Code with it and be like, I don't even think it's a real painting. I actually think it's a code and we need Tom Hanks to help us kind of hack it. Look, friends, where does the meaning of the Mona Lisa come from? Da Vinci, right? The one who painted it. The one who made it. The one who thought it out who sketched it and then started filling it in and worked out it. The meaning comes from the one who made it. That's all the psalmist is saying that the meaning comes from the maker. He is where you and I go to determine purpose. He is where you and I go to find fulfillment. He is where you and I go to find happiness. He is where you and I go to find our purpose in his will, in our plan, in all of those things. The meaning comes from the maker. It comes from the maker. That our public and communal praise is not just a singing to, for, about. It's a meeting with our maker, the one who designed us. Friends, you know this. Feeling and circumstances will go. The psalmist doesn't seem interested in those. He didn't reference them one time. All he referenced referenced was your God's character because it's set in stone. 
It, it stays the same. He said, your God is good. And that's an all-the-time good. And that's in every situation good, that he's great. And there'll be no one that will be able to compare to his greatness. That he's in control, and he'll never relinquish that control. No one will ever take that control from him. That he's powerful. He's powerful. That he's the creator of all. That, that he's the upholder of all. From the hairs that are on our heads to the planets that are orbiting above us. That he's the maker of everything, right? From those beautiful sunset and the most beautiful mountain range to the little insects that are scurrying around this building right now. And because of all those things, your God is worthy of praise. But he's not just done. He says it's not just you praise him and you sing to him. He also says because of that, you and I are to surrender to him. Surrender to him. We see this in verses 6 and 7. He says this. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he's our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and we are the sheep of his hand. Our praise when we come in here on Sunday mornings is not just a public communal singing to, for, about, and in the presence of our God. It is that. It's just not just that. It is also a bowing in reverence to this God. Now, the psalmist seems to be talking about it in a physical way, and I think that's beautiful. Like a physical posture, like kneeling to pray, kneeling during worship, I think that's beautiful, and that should happen more. But I don't think that's the only thing he's talking about. I think he's talking about a disposition, a heart inclination of worship, a natural reverence towards your maker. And this makes perfect sense. If you were going to big idea this psalm, if you are going to describe what is this psalm about, like in one sentence, if you are going to explain to someone, this is what it's about. It's about a creator God's intimate relationship with its creation. And friends, our human relationships even reveal this as well. You cannot have intimacy, and you cannot have a deeply affected relationship and a healthy relationship without some sort of bowing to one another, right? A humble kind of coming low in front of the other person. That's necessary even in our earthly relationships, how much more so in our relationship to our heavenly Father, right? And he doesn't just say it based on our posture. He also says it based on how he referred to you. And do you remember how he referred to us in 6 and 7? He said, you're a sheep. You're a sheep. And he's your shepherd. He's your shepherd. You being a sheep means you are the one that needs direction. Not him. That you are the one that needs to be led places. Not him. That you are the one that without his leadership and care will chase green pastures to your own demise. That actually, left to yourself, you're going to shipwreck your life. That you need a shepherd. Now, don't be offended by that. Think of all the ways he could have talked about it. He could have used uh, creature creation language. He didn't, right? He could have used uh, master-slave language. He didn't. He could have used king-peasant, something like that, right? He could have used boss in, like, employee language. But instead, he went, the psalmist went with shepherd and sheep. Why would he do that? Because the identity of the shepherd is wrapped into the care of the sheep, right? Shepherds protect sheep. They go after sheep when they go astray. They lead sheep to good places, to good water, to good grass. They take care of the sheep. In fact, if a shepherd doesn't take care of a sheep... He won't have sheep for long, which means he won't be a shepherd for long. You see how the very nature and identity of the shepherd is actually wrapped up in the security, in the care of the sheep. And notice the pronouns he used. He said, you are the sheep of his pasture. Can I lovingly, lovingly remind you, there ain't no other grass for you. There ain't no other pasture for you. 
It'll look green. It'll look green. It won't satisfy. That you're made for one pastor. That's his pastor. And that there's a bunch of lesser rulers in this world, a bunch of mid-level managers, and none of them are to be your shepherd. They don't correct right. They don't lead right. They don't have the compassion and the power, the perfect mix of love and truth. They don't have any of that. There is one shepherd. There is one hand that directs you and cares for you. That's what the psalmist is saying. It's deeply personal. And I'm a sheep of his pasture. I'm a sheep of his hand. It's close and it's intimate. And not only, friends, will a shepherd or will a lesser shepherd not do, the psalmist is also making very clear that you and me are also not that shepherd. We're not him either. We're not him either. You see, to the psalmist, true worship is a surrendered worship. It's you and I realizing, man, we are sheep, and he's the shepherd, and therefore, therefore we bow in reverence to him. Very practically, it means this. Very practically, your God calls the shots in your life. That's what that means, right? He calls the shots, not you. He calls the shots for all of life. It means this. This is a deeply affected, intimate relationship with God, how the psalmist is describing it. You and I should be able to grab a coffee and share story after story after story of times in our life where everything in us was pointing this direction, where all of culture was pointing this direction, with what we wanted and what we were feeling was pointing this direction, but our shepherd lovingly told us to go this way, and we bowed in reverence to him, for he knows better than us. We should be filled with stories of that because we're sheep. We're sheep, and he's the good shepherd, not us. Can I lovingly ask you? This is a very good question, and I think we should be really honest with it. Is your God allowed to confront you? It's a really good question. Is he allowed to? The God that you and I espouse to worship, the God that you and I espouse to love, is he allowed to tell you what to do? Is he allowed to? It's a very important question to answer. Is he allowed to convict you? Is he allowed to move you using his word, to counsel you by his spirit? Can I lovingly warn you? If the God you serve always agrees with you, if the God you serve feels the same way about everything that you feel, if the God you serve has always the same desires for your life that you have, friend, you serve no God. You serve you. Your God sounds an awful lot like you. We're the sheep, right? We're the sheep. We lean on our good shepherd. We should expect confrontation because he is the shepherd and we are the sheep. We are not the ones in control. You see, the psalmist is clear. Don't mix it up. It is a singing to your God. It absolutely is. But it is a surrendered worship. It is a bowing down in reverence, in posture to your God, announcing that he's my maker. He determines my path. He determines my steps. Not my feelings, not the world around me, not anything that feels right within me. It is him and him alone. It is his pasture. It is his land. It is his hand that I follow. But the psalmist isn't done there. He says, that's just two or three. We're not done. And it's also a following of this God. Not just a surrendering to, but a listening to and going in that direction. He says this in verses 7 through 10. Look, he says this. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. 
For 40 years, I loathed that generation, and I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. The psalmist is saying, I don't want you to just have a joyful, deeply affected emotional faith in worship, and I don't want you to just have a surrendered and bowing worship. I also want you to have a communal, listening, and following worship of your king. And he does that by bringing up an Old Testament story. He's talking about an old story there. It's the one that I mentioned earlier on purpose, right? God has freed his people from Egyptian slavery. He parts an ocean, and they walk through that ocean. And the second they get to the other side of that ocean, they stop having the ability to have food and water. And instead of trusting the God who just parted an ocean on their behalf, they start to look back and they start to complain. And they start to say things like, you know what, actually, if I was a slave, at least I'd be eating something right now. Or if I was a slave, at least I would have something to drink. And they hit this pivotal moment where they have the opportunity. They can trust and they can listen to their God amidst difficulty in their life, or, or they can go their own way. And the psalmist is describing the decision they make. If you don't know the story, they go their own way. And in doing so, they actually bar a whole generation from entering the promised land. You see, their lack of worship was shown not by a public praising or anything like that, by an inability to listen to and follow their maker amidst difficulty. Because that's when the rubber really meets the road, amidst difficulty. You see, they experience difficulty, and instead of worshiping the God that just parted an ocean on their behalf, trusting the God who just parted an ocean on their behalf days earlier, trusting the God who, who loves them that much, they decide they will go their own way. Their lack of worship is shown by their inability to listen and to follow him. And in doing that, they forsake something. And this is really important. This is what I really want you to see. Verse 11, the psalmist tells him, this is what you lost. This is what you lost. It says this, therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What does he mean? He means when you and I go our own way, when we follow lesser shepherds, including ourselves, when we direct our worship to lesser things, that we are missing something that God wants for us. He doesn't, he doesn't want the worship because, uh, because he just really likes attention. Or he, he doesn't want the worship just because he gets a kick out of waking up on Sunday morning and watching all these people gather for him like, like he's really into it or something like that. No, it's because he wants something for you and for me, not from us. He wants something for us. And the psalmist here describes it as a rest, as a rest. You see, when you and I go our own way, when we worship ourselves and lesser things, and we decide that we are the true kings and queens of our life, we are not just missing something, we are actually forsaking something beautiful that he is offering us. We're forsaking something beautiful he's offering us. You can look at it this week, the writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, he'll actually take the same passage and he's going to riff on it to show you that actually it is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, that baby in a manger, that you and I will find that deeper rest. This is the best way I could think to illustrate this. Uh, years ago, I wasn't married and I lived in a house with a bunch of guys and we all worked at the same church together. And one of the guys in the house was, a, uh, was the college pastor at the church. And so it's just like known, we're always going to have college kids in and out of the house. That's just how this works. Okay, And so I remember this one college kid came into our house one day. He's so smart, like 100 times smarter than me, NC State student, the whole thing. And he came into the house and he announced very matter-of-factly uh, that he had read online that if he was to have five 20-minute power naps spaced equally throughout the day, 
Like set an alarm and space them equally throughout the day. And if you will do that and take five 20-minute power naps, that you can actually go without sleeping at night. You can go without. And he was so pumped about it because he had like hacked the system, right? Now he can play more video games. He can have a way better social life. He can get all the studying in and all the homework in. He can have the best of everything. All he has to do is set a timer and at equally spaced moments throughout the, way, throughout the day, wherever he's at, he just needs to go down and have a 20-minute power nap. And he tried it. I remember one time he was in our house and his timer went off and he went right upstairs to one of our rooms and took a nap for like 20-something minutes and then he came downstairs looking terrible. Like he just looked so tired, so tired. So either way, as one of the staff members at the church, I knew I would see him on Sunday. And so I was really excited to run into him on Sunday because I just wanted to hear like, did you hack the system? You know what I mean? Like, did it work? And I'll never forget him coming up to me on Sunday and being like, yeah, I made it about five days. And then at one point, I went down for my 20-minute nap, and I just woke up the next day. Like, I, I just slept and slept. You see, it turns out, friends, that part of being a creature in a created world is that you and I need to lay ourselves down for a deep, restorative gospel rest. Not a power nap, a deep, restorative, restful kind of sleep, an eight-hours kind of sleep. This is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, this is what you are foregoing. There's this deep, beautiful, rejuvenating, restful sleep that is being offered to you if you would just stop taking these 20-minute power naps of self-help or pointing your worship towards things that do not matter or pointing your worship to things that will never amount up or following your own ways and forsaking his ways, that what you're actually forsaking is this deep, eight-hour restorative rest. As you and I turn our attention to Christmas, what does this have to do with Christmas? Everything! right? Everything. Not only is the Christmas story full of people worshiping this baby, what it shows is that your God, who is worthy of all of this, worthy of surrender, worthy of praise, is also the God who had the compassion to come in the first place, right? That not only does he want you and I to worship him, and not only does he want you and I to find a rest in him, that he actually came and lived the life that you should have lived and died the death in in your place that you should have died to earn that rest for you. The same one that you were worshiping is the one who did the work to offer you the very rejuvenating gospel rest. It means this, and hear this during the Christmas season. This is the time to hear it. Hear this during the Christmas season. It means this. You don't have to live up anymore. Because he did. Because he did. You don't have to chase things that ultimately will not satisfy you. You can actually be completely and utterly satisfied in Jesus Christ. He can handle your satisfaction. The crushing burden, the rat race, that weird feeling of like running all day and never arriving anywhere, never actually amounting up to anything, that can end because the one that you and I worship is the one who came for us. He's the one who was lifted high up on a cross and announced it is finished, and he meant it. Like it's finished for you and I. You can rest in him and in his work. And really, all throughout the psalm, the psalmist has been hinting that it's him. It's this baby in the manger. That's the one I want you to put your attention towards. That's the one I want you to put your worship towards. Can I give you a few as we land the plane today? Show you a few of these nuggets. I see one head nod. That's good enough for me. Here we go. Uh, Verse 1, he says, your Lord, uh, he calls your God the Lord. That's Yahweh. Which means the God who is I am. I am. Jesus comes on the scene. Gospel of John. You know this. And he says this. Hey, truly, truly, I say to you. Before Abraham, I am. Jesus says, oh yeah, that's about me, man. It's about me. 
Verse one, the psalmist calls your God your rock of salvation. That's an interesting phrase, right? A rock of salvation. And then after calling your God the rock of salvation, he references this Old Testament story, right? That involves a rock and water and a thirst and people going their own way in the book of Exodus. And then Paul comes on the scene and Paul in Corinthians shows you and I that that rock the whole time was actually Jesus Christ. This is what he says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Christ. Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm that rock of your salvation. Worship me. In verse 3, the psalmist calls your God Jesus Christ, the king over all kings. King over all kings, John. Revelation 19, talking about Jesus, says, that's him. That's your Jesus. That's your baby in a manger. He says this, then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John says, it's him. The baby in the manger, it is him. Verses 4 and 5 in the psalm, he calls your God creator over everything. Paul in Colossians says, that's Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, he says, for by him, by him, all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers and authorities. That's lower G gods, right? That's all he's saying. That's lower G gods. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's miraculous, right? What do we celebrate at Christmas? The coming of this baby? Paul is saying, yeah, that baby in that manger who needed his mom's milk, right? Who needed diapy changes, who had straw poking his little infant's soft skin, was at the same time the creator and the upholder of everything. Worship him. Verse 7, the psalmist says that your God is like a shepherd, and you are like a sheep. Jesus comes on the scene, right? Isn't that what Jesus said about himself? He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, and they will all listen to my voice. Jesus says, I'm that shepherd. I'm that one. Verse 11, the psalmist calls you and I to a rest. Jesus comes on the scene and says, yeah, you find that in me, friends. Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a true rest, a rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, do you see him? That that baby in the manger is your Lord? That baby in the manger is the rock of your salvation? That baby in the manger is the risen king over all, the one who created all, the upholder of all, the good shepherd who speaks to you and I, the one in whom you and I can find rest. This is your Jesus Christ. Your next steps today are so simple. So simple in light of Psalm 95. So simple. Not easy. Simple. Worship him. Work. Give it to him. Give him the praise and the honor and the glory that he deserves. Worship him. Surrender to him. If you're here today and you feel the, the conviction of his spirit, you feel his confrontation, lean in, friend. Lean in. It is a good thing. It is a good thing that you are, you are feeling his direction 
that you're hearing his voice. Can I remind you of who he is? Can I remind you of who he is? That one who is trying to direct you? That one who is calling you to come unto him? He's the very same one who loves you more than you love you. I promise you that. He knows you better than you know you. He knows this world better than you know this world. He's got more wisdom in, in like a part of his pinky than you could ever have. He's actually currently upholding all of creation, right? And then on top of all that, on top of all power to change you, on top of all power to do anything in this world, he also has the compassion to come for you and to live for you and to die for you. Would you worship him today? If you're feeling his prick and his call, would you come unto him today? Would you come unto him? Because he's good. He's good. It's a good shepherd who is calling you. Remember that. Lastly, church, would you listen to him? Would you listen to him? Would you beg him for his insight? for his wisdom and for his guidance in your life? Would you beg him to keep you from hardening your heart, which you and I will do so naturally right, harden our heart to it? This is what true worship is, a deeply affected praising, a bowing in reverence, and a following of our God. So let's do that today. I'm gonna pray for us, and then we will respond to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, who is our rest, and he's our life, and he's our salvation and he's our shepherd. And so would you now help us worship him in spirit and truth? Would you help us honor him? Not just with our voices, but with our posture, with our lives. Father, I pray there are people in here who maybe for the first time would lay their lives down at your feet for your good. Spirit, we need your help in all this. All around this room, would you help us surrender, help us kill the little G gods that we so easily hold on to, that so easily entangle us, so that Jesus would receive the praise he deserves. And we could find our ultimate rest in him again. We ask all of this in his precious name and all God's people in one accord said, amen.